1: Welcome to In Discussion. Our guest today, Dr. Mihor Ledwith, joins the programme to talk to the spiritual evolution of our world and his work that receives recognition across the globe. Welcome to this, the second part of the series with Dr. Mihor Ledwith. Uh, Mihaw Ledwith, uh, good afternoon to you.
2: Good afternoon, David. How are you doing today?
1: I'm, I'm very well, Miho. Great to
2: be back with
1: you. Uh, and uh, likewise. What a wonderful first program that we shared. Uh, we went through the journey that you've taken up to the present time with your work in uh, systematic theology at St. Patrick's uh, College, your time with Pope John Paul II, and we moved into some other issues, topics in regards to the Scriptures. And what I'd like to do here now is, before we look at the various DVDs and your speaking tours and topics that you cover, look at the Rantha School of Ancient Wisdom, and I do hope that I'm pronouncing that correctly, and and see exactly when it was that you became immersed in this school, and to what extent that has changed your life.
2: Well, certainly, I've been uh, quite a long time a member of the school. But, uh, you know, given my past uh, history, I mentioned to you before that I was very fortunate to have been able to to devote so much time to scientific research in theology and the disciplines associated with it. And I was probably the last person, I would say, in the entire universe who (laughs) would ever accept the validity of channeled information because I had come across so much absolute balderdash you know uh, in my time from this source and that source and usually they were all uh, completely fraudulent or self-serving or whatever so i was the, really i would say the very last person in the world to uh, to believe that anything could ever happen you know through this form of communication and uh, I had, in the course of my studies over many, many years, realized that there were major gaps in all of the great religious systems and the great philosophical systems. And, I I mean, that's not a woolly statement. I know what those gaps are. Uh, For instance, you know, I, I had always taught when I was a professor that what we do here on this earth is meant to accomplish a profound internal change in you and me because I believe that was the teachings of Jesus Christ. But I could never uh, identify how that change was to be accomplished. I just knew it was entirely different from, you know, as we discussed in our last interview, just amassing a good score on on terms of right and wrong and, and uh, criteria for behavior. There was much more involved here than that, um, and uh, I, I just couldn't quantify it. So I had isolated, you know, maybe four or five major gaps like that, which weren't answered in any of the main religious systems that I was aware of, and I had really searched every system, east and west, north and south, ancient and modern. And lo and behold, to my intense surprise, uh, I uh, saw in these teachings of the Ramtha School of Ancient Wisdom that those gaps were filled. Now, of course, that was a catastrophic Realisation for me, because I realised that my entire life, uh, to up to that point, um, was going to have to change radically, because obviously the, you know, the basis on which the teachings of the school rest are very different from the teachings on which my life up to that stage had rested. So it was a profound change, but but uh, and at the same time, it was no change at all. Because the the uh, things that I had been searching for and looking for, in which I had saw reflected so well in, in the yearnings and searchings of especially young people or people who were sincere and honest and who were not in any box but were looking for answers to those four great questions we discussed the last day, this teaching was exactly in harmony with that so from one point of view david it was it was of course a catastrophic upheaval i mean it was the san andreas fault beneath my whole existence so far but at the same time you know in another sense it was no change at all but just the opening up of a new horizon on what i've been searching for all along
1: as part of that can you define the form that those ancient wisdoms take are they related to the very ancient christian beliefs that we would often talk about from centuries ago yeah. uh, and and how do they manifest in this school
2: well they do that's the that's the odd thing you know which many people who just you know look at, like to look at the surface appearances of things uh, miss because what i realized is that uh, that These teachings, to my mind, were exactly the kind of teachings that Jesus Christ had been doing his very best to put forward, but which, of course, were, if I may use the word hijacked, and turned in an entirely different direction as we discussed the last day, because it was becoming clearer and clearer to me that if you use the terminology of of a much later time, that Jesus was actually teaching mastery of the quantum field. In other words, his teachings were not so much moral precepts but tools for the manipulation of the quantum field and the changing of reality and I, you know I had, I had begun to see that that the the great, the great expressions such as you find of his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, they were actually implementations of his basic uh, mandate you know when you pray for something believe it is already yours, and it would be so. We discussed that towards the end in our first interview. And the way in which you believe it is already yours, of course, that's a perfect expression of what the quantum physicist and quantum mechanics tells us, that the observer creates reality. So I began to see that the teachings of Jesus, and this will be a big feature in my book, of course, forthcoming. The, uh, the teachings of Jesus were not so much moral precepts at all, even though people as diverse as Gandhi and Nietzsche and others have said you know, that they're extremely profound, which they are. But they were, in addition to being profound moral precepts, maybe too profound that can never survive in the realities of the kind of world we live in, but basically they were something entirely different, which was that if you practice these things, you will alter the quantum field and you will alter the reality that you experience. Now, of course, this is poles apart from uh, the way traditional Christianity portrays things. You know, you, you ask God, you beg God, you implore God, as I said, which is always putting yourself in a position of lack. You know, I ask God for something, I ask God for health for someone who's dear and close to me, dying of cancer... And I ask God to heal them, or I ask God to solve some of my problems. So once you ask, once you beg, once you implore, once you beseech, once you pray, in the sense we've understood praying, we are always distancing ourselves from what it is we want. And that's the catastrophic disaster here, because we know from quantum physics that if I want something, as Jesus expressed it, I have to be in a state of consciousness that I already am it and if I'm not in that state I cannot attract that condition to me out of the quantum field
1: can I ask sure before we extend that conversation what are your thoughts on the Trinity on God Jesus Christ the Holy Spirit what are your feelings on on that concept that idea
2: do you have 400 years to spare? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I
1: think that that uh, possibly is a brief conversation to have here in terms of...
2: No, no, I'm, I'm not I'm not. Uh, not at all denying the relevance of what you're saying. I'm just saying this is such a vast area. You know, the whole of the first four centuries of Christian history and the intense debates that took place, uh, say, up to the Council of Chalcedon in the late 400s, we're trying to make sense of two things that really were impossible to make sense of. Firstly, that Jesus was a fully and complete human being, and secondly, that he was divine, or God, as they put it. And, of course, it was the God, as I put it, of the hamburger universe that they were talking about. So basically, you're trying to reconcile the irreconcilable. And as a result, they're trying to make sense of how Jesus related to God the Father, how he related to the second person of the Trinity, he was supposed to be the incarnation of that, and thirdly, how he related to the Holy Spirit. So, my view, based on, say, the system of Ramtha's teaching, is that of course there is a creator, you may well call that God the Father if that is your desire. And in science, in the neuroscientists' work, etc., today, you have it called point zero and I you know I prefer I prefer a word like that because uh, I said to you maybe in the previous interview that I believe myself the word g-o-d is basically beyond rehabilitation because it's overlain with so much layers of of misunderstanding as carrying so much baggage that the old man with the beard and the clouds you know studying us through his telescope and marking down our score, right and wrong, you know, this image of God has to go. I was giving a a talk for, um, in part of the recording of my second DVD uh, of the three I recorded last week, I was looking at the galaxy I mentioned to you, the M81 galaxy, it's roughly the size of our own Milky Way, which is of course a relatively minor galaxy. And we can't photograph the Milky Way from outside, but we can, you know, have a fair representation of it in M81 galaxy. And we are a tiny speck that couldn't even be seen out in the arms of one of, that, one of the arms of that galaxy. And there are billions of these galaxies, even in the visible universe. How we could have ever imagined that we were at the center of all of this, how we could, worse still, ever have imagined that God was some sort of enlarged human being, Who was talking and wishing and hoping and getting angry and punishing I mean this is uh, I remember once I gave my students an essay when I was teaching theology man made God in his image comment and that's what exactly has happened you know we we have pictured God much to the detriment of God as an enlarged version of ourselves
1: is that something that has arrived Or are you suggesting is that that's something that's arrived, or a combination of the Gospels with Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Or is this confusion because of the religious institution that has evolved over the centuries?
2: Well, David, in my humble opinion, it's a combination of all of those things you mentioned. I mean, one thing that strikes me... Very deeply, in the time of Saint Paul and Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The solar system that we live in was regarded as the entire universe, and everything was couched in those terms. And of course, the Earth, even given the fact that Greek astronomers like Aristophanes and so forth were knew that the sun was at the center. You know, uh, what 1,400 years before Galileo and Copernicus and even at the beginning of the 20th century scientists astronomers scientists believe that the milky way galaxy was the entire universe even scientists believed that at the beginning of the 20th century so we're talking about an entirely different worldview, uh, an entire lack of awareness of the real place we hold in in the system of creation Now I obviously believe there is a creator behind all of this, as I said in one of the DVDs last week, you know, at the time when I came up against this problem, I was still young enough to know everything, but I didn't think at the same time that there was no answer because I knew scientifically, like Karl Popper, that we referred to the other day, that um, if your starting points are wrong, you can never get the right answer. So maybe you should examine your starting points, and I think that's what we have got to examine here.
1: So, in that debate, are we considering evolution as defined by Darwin, or, or is that not necessarily part of those challenges that we face?
2: You know, the the problem with all of these debates is that they're so heated and so emotionally laden, and they're so uh, dragged. Into all sorts of debates of a personal kind. I don't think that the dark I don't think anyone thinks that Darwin's brand of evolution is the be all and the end all. I mean, there are major errors in it, obviously. Uh, I don't think that intelligent design, you know, which is nowadays set up as the the straw man in, appos- in opposition to Dar- Darwinianism, is the the end and and uh, be all of the discussion. I think that these are different conjectures that that we're all making, that there must have been some uh, intelligence creating it. You know, it wasn't just a lightning striking a stinking pool somewhere that caused the origin of life. I think that's an absurd idea. But at the same time, I think the process is very different from the way we have considered it. And I think our understanding of who God, the creator of this entire system is, is in radical need of redefinition. I think that's why we have so many of the boutique atheists around today, because what they are reacting against is not the true God, the true creator, but the religion's version of the creator, which uh, to a large extent, I'm afraid, are, are... a little lacking substance.
1: Let me ask you, uh, before we move into the hidden years, how Jesus became the Christ, uh, how was your life changed after your incredible work in the Vatican? Um, how, how was your work viewed? How did you feel about the way that your work was viewed in, in looking at the bigger picture, as it were?
2: Well, the work, uh, you know, when I was a member of the International Theological Commission, I was there for 17 years, which is a long time on that commission. But it was uh, work that was mainly focused on very scientific areas of theology, professional theology. We were not meant to be at the cutting edge, we were meant to be assessing you know, because of relationships between the churches, because of the pressures of uh, modern science, whatever, we were meant to be assessing, you know, very, very difficult and scientifically deep uh, areas of theology. So I, my, my work in that, I think, was, was received very well. I was chairman of the commission, I think, on three occasions, and I was author of the document on at least that number of occasions. So I think it was received very well, and there was, there was a great openness to it. But obviously, I suppose to a larger degree, and I say this with the greatest possible respect, that the, the work was largely a rearranging of the furniture. And uh, it was assuming that all of the presuppositions were absolutely correct, I mean, which, of course, by definition, as we know, a scientific insight cannot be the last word ever, it's always subject to reformulation and uh, reaffirmation in a different form as new evidence comes to light. So that was the thing, I suppose, where the the, uh, difficulty came for me, that we were basically rearranging the furniture, maybe in a very exquisite way, but that some of the deeper issues that were coming to the fore uh, about human existence and all that were, were not possible to address in that format. And that's what I was always searching for, say, in my own researches and in my own teaching, is to make sense of those four great questions, you know, where the heck did we come from? What happens after death? But more importantly, what happens prior to life? Uh, which is a question the Western religions have not one whit to say on I mean, in some regards, obviously, one might say that the view of what happens after death, you know, and the images of heaven and hell and purgatory um, are are extremely naive and misleading. But at least they're there. But, but, uh, you know, with what precedes, precedes life, Western churches haven't anything to say. And yet we begin to see that the conditions of my own life right now we determined by the qualities of the existence that preceded it before birth. In and the issues are there in my faith to resolve now.
1: But in this changing time, this amazing new direction that the world is taking now, it must be posing a lot of questions or values for the Vatican. Do they themselves now look both at scientific evidence as well as scriptural evidence as they move forward in trying to not only evaluate where the world is but also trying to evaluate where they are as a religion?
2: Well, I would certainly hope that that is the case. I mean, I am no longer obviously in touch with the Vatican and the the moves that I have made obviously, to put it extremely mildly, have not exactly met with universal approval. And it's always much easier to destroy the messenger than confront the message, as I'm sure you are well aware. But leaving that aside, I am not filled with optimism on this score because, as I think I mentioned in the previous previous interview with you, that the hallmark of religion, unfortunately, in the face of incoming information of a new kind, is not to embrace it and to see what insight it has to give, but rather to batten down the hatches and say, you know, our truth is irreformable and permanent and, and valid and true, irrespective of what happens. And I think that that is going to be the death knell of any group, I mean, I'm not necessarily the church, but any group that wants to bar investigation and understanding in order to maintain control. That is its death knell. I hope the church uh, would see that.
1: That position I suppose is arrived at because of the scientific discoveries we've made certainly since the 1940s. Yes. So you're suggesting that it's more about our position in a very high state of of scientific evidence and and technology that has driven this change rather than anything that's internal to the religious makeup or the religious institution?
2: Well, I definitely think the impetus to re-understanding many of these things is definitely coming from uh, a much more adequate understanding of where we actually fit into the scheme of things. And in that perspective, you know, if you look at, for example, the basic fact of where do we fit into the physical creation, we live in the boondocks of this galaxy, and that itself is a very rural galaxy. We are not living in prime real estate. So the visions of God that went with that antiquated view of reality from a much less evolved stage of human history, I think... The, the churches and anyone who is interested in talking about our eternal destiny and our purpose here, because I think the human person has an enormous purpose to fulfill here. But instead, we're dabbling around in little puddles instead of embracing the whole ocean. And I think that if the churches as a whole do not embrace this and try to reformulate what they're about, I mean, every science on the face of God's earth has reformulated itself as new knowledge, new knowledge comes in. Why do the very institutions that claim to be guiding our eternal destiny turn their backs on it all, when actually you know, it could be much more to their gain than to their detriment? It must come out of some colossal insecurity or fear, and of course colossal insecurity and fear makes people very, very difficult to deal with and the the inevitable reaction is has always been to try to exterminate, stifle or trample on the people who actually do want to help these institutions, especially the church
1: Well, and we do uh, look at those very words towards the end of the program, if we may, in general terms, you know the instability, addictions, fear, betrayal, and all of those human. Uh, responses that we have to everyday life. I'd like to look now at the hidden years, how Jesus became the Christ, because this is a, surely as you know, a great area of contention. There's so much discussion about those lost years of Jesus Christ until we saw him rise in his last uh, three years of his life. What are you talking to in this? in context to the Gospels, and perhaps that emphasis on Mark and Luke?
2: Well, uh, I mean, it was obvious to me before I ever heard that Jesus, uh, the suggestion that Jesus was in the East, it was obvious to me that there was enormous influence in his in his material, as we have it in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I said to you, uh, one thing that struck me when I was reading the writings of the Buddha, was that all the parables, all I think all the major parables of Jesus are to be found in the Buddha. Every one of them. And I, I think I mentioned some of those in my DVD, How Jesus Became a Christ. And <clears throat> even if there had been no evidence at all that Jesus was in the East during those missing years, those mysterious 18 years from me having a single word on what he was doing, uh, it would have been obvious to me that he must have been there. Now, you know, I don't give a hoot whether Jesus was in the East or not, believe me. I, I don't really give a hoot.
1: But there, but there necessarily is great evidence to suggest that he did spend time in India. Yes, time.
2: but I'm not interested in that. You know, people spend their lives campaigning for people to accept that Jesus was in the East. I don't care whether he was in the East or not. I believe he was. The important point is, what did he bring back from there that's of benefit to you and me? That is the heart and core of the matter. And I think uh, that what Jesus did, and I'm not saying that he just was an ordinary man who came down here and, you know, happened to emerge into unparalleled greatness, which he did. I I am not of that belief. I I believe it was planned that Jesus came in here at a certain time and place to make a vast difference in the religion of humanity, which he did do, Unfortunately, most of the direction, I think, was lost by the unfortunate turn that, uh, that the people who were carrying on his message took. But what he did come back from the East, say, at the age of 30, and baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist at that stage, what he brought back from the East was a path that is open to every man and woman who has ever lived on this earth. In other words, how do I transcend my physical body so that the realms that are above the physical, in which I also live, as I tried to bring out in in my, in my DVD on the orb phenomenon, Orbs Clues to a More Exciting Universe, how do I access those realms of me? And if I am able to access them, then all the wonders that Jesus did and taught we can do as well and he wanted us to do that he said if if, you know if you follow my teachings you will do all the wonders that i did and greater indeed than these will you do as stated in the gospel of saint john so uh, that is what he came to do and to teach how the divine that is inside every person who has ever lived can be brought out and how it can live in the physical body on this earth that is what he came to do he did not come to suffer and die for our sins. Can you imagine what that concept says about God? That God is a sadist, a vindictive father who's supposed to love us but still will punish us for all eternity for some relatively minor transgression. How could God be so small? I mean, this doesn't even hold water on its own terms. So that's what Jesus brought back. As I said, I don't care where he got it. I don't care if he got it in the South Pole. The important thing is that this was the message that he brought back and wanted you and me to follow. And as I said, all of his moral teachings are tools to help us to accomplish that. That is the message of his hidden years, and, you know, it doesn't matter who, where they were, uh, but that is something, unfortunately, that was lost when the church, or what became the church, took a different turn at a certain point.
1: How do you feel about the Old Testament? How do you feel about the authorship of Moses in the Old Testament?
2: I mean, the the Old Testament has some, you know, absolutely profound stuff which has inspired, rightly so, countless generations of people. I have a profound regard for the Old Testament. There are also absolutely horrible things in the Old Testament, as you know, the slaughtering of the innocent, you know, the wiping out of entire populations at God's behest, dashing out the brains of children on the rocks, etc., eliminating entire uh, groups of people who happen to be in the way of inheriting the promised land. I mean, if these are, in the book of Joshua, for instance, if these are supposed to be actions of the true God, nowadays they would guarantee you an appearance before the Court of Human Rights in Geneva. So, uh, I mean, this is a different matter here. I have profound regard for other parts of the Old Testament, but back to your question about the Mosaic authorship of the Torah, the first five books, I mean, it does contain some rather odd things, like uh, how the Torah, who was supposed to, which is supposed to have been written by Moses, contains an account of Moses' own death. And uh, the rabbinical scholars of the later... Vintage, of course, uh, said that Moses was resurrected in order to write the account of his own death.
1: Well, in, in in that, of course, they're suggesting that there was a ghost writer, as it were, who was involved in that part of the yes of uh, the writings.
2: I think the Torah, the first five books of the what we call in Christianity, the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible. I think this has some very very profound stuff. Uh, does. It mean it came from G-O-D, you know, the point zero, the origin of the entire creation, or did it come from some other being? That's a
3: great question. That's what we've
2: basically got to. Every human being who has ever walked this earth ponders at
3: some time in his or her life. All must answer in some way. Who am I? Do I just have to come here, grow up, struggle to get ahead, and it's all over before we know it? Or am I more than that? Who am I? Where did I come from? What should I do while I'm here? And where am I going? The advice is inconsistent, confusing.
1: Going on to the Hamburger universe, Mm -hmm. what was it that led you into this world of and I'm now talking about practical terms today uh, your work today what what led you into making films into creating these DVDs and obviously being part of the speaker circuit as it were is a given but the DVDs I'm interested to know what sparked your interest as a as a, a form of a medium
2: well I was appointed to an academic post in 1971. Oh, my Lord, how long ago is that? <laughs> 39 years ago. So, I mean, I was, te- I was teaching from 1971, and I always did an enormous amount of speaking outside of, of the university. I mean, I remember on one, one occasion when I did keep track, which I think was about the mid-70s, I spoke on 84 occasions outside of the college between uh, september uh, between the end of september and the end of may which is the academic year 84 occasions in one year so i was always doing that so when i began to do the dvds it was more or less a continuation of that i realized that i could never uh you know reach personally on the number of people that might want to hear me perhaps for one reason or another so I thought that instead of doing a book, which you know, given given my academic background would have been my natural inclination, that I would uh, try to do them in, in a DVD form, and I would do seven DVDs, which I had in mind. I now have six of them done, almost, and I have one more to come, which is on the question you've just raised, the origin of the human race. So um, I thought it was more accessible, and I'm not sure right now whether it is or not, because people have to sit down and devote a certain amount of time to look at a DVD, whereas I think with uh, MP3s and iPods and all all the other technologies that are such so wonderful today, the people tend to listen more than they do to view. So maybe, you know, if I were revisiting this again, even though my, my DVDs have been extremely well received all over the world... Um, that maybe, maybe uh, you know, a more accessible medium would have been just audio alone, because people plug them in in their car, or their iPods or whatever. So I, I, I was fundamentally uh, departing from my own tradition of the written word to, to uh, put it across in a different medium. But uh, once that was done, I was going to put this material into written form.
1: What are the main principal goals in that hall, uh, in with not only this work, but but all of your work What are your um, prime objectives or, or your dream in in this journey that, that you are on as much as we are all on?
2: Yeah Well, you know, I I think one thing we have to uh, Disillusion ourselves about uh, David is that we're not we're not here to change the world We are here to change ourselves And if we do that successfully, then the world will change. Uh, That that was a a point of view I learned from the Ramtha School of Ancient Wisdom, which one thing about it, you know, that intrigued me was that it was not about following anyone. It was not about worshipping a guru. It was about drawing out the power that is in ourselves. And uh, I remember Nelson Mandela at his inauguration, spoke about that he said the one thing that we're afraid of is not our uh, poverty stricken weakness etc the one thing we really are afraid of is our own power and I think that is really true I discovered afterwards he was quoting Marianne Williamson who has done wonderful work in this area so I think we are really afraid of our own power and the responsibility that it brings so my dream to come to your question precisely is I would at least like in some modest way to draw to people's attention that there is much more to you and me than we have been traditionally been told. There are much, much more radical potentials open to you and me than we have ever heard of. We were never meant to die. The science has even discovered recently that there is an immortal gene in our makeup. We were never meant to come here for a relatively short period of time and die, and you know, and be judged, and sent to heaven and hell for all eternity. Where did these ideas come from? Good God! I mean, as I said earlier uh, to you in the other in the other interview, you know, Jesus never spoke of oh, the hell of everlasting torments. And I was looking at Christopher Fry uh, the other day, speaking about limbo and purgatory and all that stuff. Where did this come from? Ask yourself. Here, stop. Put on the brakes. You know, burn rubber on the tarmac and stop here. Where did all this stuff come from?
1: Well, is is this something that is driven by centuries of religious power struggles? I yes, suppose you would say that's what you're suggesting here. It that
2: is. no, I mean, I, I, yes, I am. I'm indeed. I'm. I'm not as. Uh, I'm not phrasing it as delicately as you. <laughs> <laughs> I am not suggesting it. I know that it is. That, that that you know it's much more easy to control large numbers of people if you speak in terms of a single life that is assessed on the basis of whether you have, have obeyed x number of rules or not and that is followed by a reward or a punishment for all eternity that is a much more simple system to administer than an alternative system which says we are here to make known the unknown, uh, which is something I learned from the realm of school of in- ancient wisdom, and uh, obviously in that things take on an entirely different perspective, and the potentials that lie in every human being, which would amaze us, are he- are things that we are here to bring forth.
1: I'd like to return to that in the back end of the program, but I'd just like to hit on the orb. No projects we that have you co-authored that with Dr. Pineman
3: and we have discovered that not alone can this energy be directed to form anything that exists in this physical realm but it is actually being directed and has always been being directed by you and me since the first day we ever became conscious here whether you realize it or not. Now, that's a sobering thing because I have found, to my great surprise over the years, that the one thing people cannot bear to hear, for the most part, is how great they actually are and what wonderful power and ability
1: yes. we all What was the have. influence on your thinking? During this period, which obviously I realize that is still continuing in earnest, it is creating an enormous amount of uh, attention across the world because you were just stating that that we are all unaware of our universe to a a great extent and the, the possibilities and the power of it. What was it in the orbs that was really expanding those thoughts?
2: Well, you know, it is amazing on my website, uh, every day, I get I get emails from people all over the world about the orb phenomenon. com is my website. And I get there images from people of orb, photographs that they've taken and so on. Now, I had never, ever heard of orbs until uh, a session of, uh, of Ramtha at the School of Wisdom. I think back in 2001 or 2002 when he gave this teaching on what orbs were. You know, these uh, mysterious spherical balls uh, of light or energy that appear in people's ordinary pictures. And they've, they've become much more common, obviously, since digital photography uh, began to take the center stage about a decade ago. Anyway, back to your question. At the time that I heard that orbs were what you and I would be if we had the misfortune to lose our physical body today. In other words, the other six levels above this level in which we all exist, right back to the Creator. So I began to take orb pictures with my digital camera, a very primitive digital camera at that time. And uh, someone kindly said, in fact, Dr. Heinemann, whom... Uh, co- who co-authored the Orb Project book with me, published by Simon & Schuster Beyond Words. Uh, he said to me today, they say you have the largest collection of uh, Orb pictures in the world, which I think I do. I, I didn't know how many I had till my computer collapsed
1: last year. <laughs> I was about to say.
2: <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> the, the unfortunate technician who came to restore the damage said, I, I know why your computer collapsed, because... <laughs> Uh, I had about a quarter of my uh, collection on that computer. And he said there were over 300,000 images on the computer, and that didn't count the ones I had elsewhere. So yes, I I spent for about two years, I photographed orbs. Uh, I didn't go to, you know, renowned places out in the wilderness that are supposed to be high energy spots and all this new age garbage and where there were vortices and I I did it on my own front porch which is much easier and uh, I spent probably an hour or two each night consistently, I almost said religiously for a moment and uh, and then a wonderful thing happened, I began to see them with my naked eye without the camera and of course I realized what was happening because we know for instance that Uh, the eye sees probably 10 times more than what the brain can recognize the brain filters out what data coming from the eye Uh, and the brain filters out everything that doesn't have to do with the immediate uh, you know everyday survival you know taking the children to school paying your mortgage that stuff The brain only allows that sort of stuff in, and orbs obviously don't fit into that very well. But if you keep impressing on your brain that you want to see these things, and what better way than spending an hour or two every night photographing them over a period of years, then the brain will stop siphoning off those, it will stop filtering them out, and you will begin to see orbs with your naked eye. Everyone is seeing orbs with their naked eye. It's the brain that is filtering them. So you don't have to be a profoundly spiritual person or very advanced in energy and all those other New Age labels to see orbs. You just have to program your brain to stop filtering them out. So anyway, that is eventually what led to an extraordinary series of pictures. And, uh, you know, some of them were published in in the book, which I did with my colleague, Dr. Heinemann, uh, uh, in the book, The Orb Project. So uh, what it showed to me is that here now for the first time, because digital cameras have come into popular use and digital cameras are slightly more sensitive to the high band of infrared than film cameras are. So a digital camera is much more appropriate for photographing orbs than a film camera was, though I have many orb pictures from film cameras as well. But the, the, the uh, extended range of the digital camera is what has made the prevalence of orbs all around us much more accessible. So for the first time, what, you know, in previous uh, years was the preserves of gurus and avatars and mystics of being able to see these objects. Now, anyone can see them. All they need is a $100 camera and they can take orbs to their heart's content. But what are these orbs? Well, basically they're vortices. They're not really orbs. They're not really uh, uh, spherical entities. They are are, uh, vortices of energy. And that's why they always look the same when you're you're seeing them. You see these circles around the outside. You see the bumps and so forth that identify them.
1: So you're not suggesting that they're spirits?
2: Well, oh, no, I don't like that word, spirit, because that's also a word that, you know, that belongs to a previous uh, time of the human race. But these are what you and I would be, as I said, if we had the misfortune to lose our physical body. And these are what endure from life to life in the physical form. So say, say that someone, we won't say you, we won't say I, had the misfortune to die today well then you're going to lose your physical aspect which is the seventh of the of the seven levels of existence that extend from the creator down to us today you'll still be alive in six dimensions after you die in the physical body and you're going to come back into a physical body most likely again so that orb will take on a physical embodiment and i have many pictures say of couples who are about to be married or something and they have an orb standing behind them, even at the wedding ceremony. I think one of those is in my book, The Orb Project, which I did with Dr. Heinemann. And uh, in some of them, they actually, the orbs actually manifest faces. And uh, I know one couple, actually, who live quite close to me here, and they, they recognize their eldest child in the face of the orb that was behind them at their wedding ceremony. So we, when, you know, this is all very different, obviously, and much more exciting. This is why I called my Orb DVD, Orb's Clues to a More Exciting Universe, because it is much more exciting. This is about pre-existence in this life. And as I said, the Western religions haven't a whit to say about that, even though it determines, uh, emphatically, the conditions of this life. And this is one thing I did learn from the Ramka School of Ancient Wisdom. The conditions that we didn't resolve in our previous lives are going to be smack in our face in our next incarnation. So before we start blaming our parents and whining and wailing, you know, about this and that, and I'm uh, so misfortunate, you know, in this economic situation, in this cultural situation, maybe we should ask ourselves, you know, maybe that was because there were a lot of issues that I didn't come to terms with previously, and it's still unfinished business.
1: And let me ask you, and I don't mean to interrupt, but let Not me ask you oh, in in the final part of the program here, because that raises the points that I did want to cover, and that are those those fears that we have. The, the, um, you are just talking to the the problems that humanity has, whether it's fear, betrayal, hatred, um, uh, insecurity, uh, and and I think that acts as a good segue here after the way that you've just defined. Uh, these objects or, or orbs, or however you want to define those. Can you talk to these uh, human reactions that we have in today's society? Um, I'm sure we've always had them, but can you talk to those as we close uh, towards the end of the program as to how uh, people can individually overcome them in their lives? Um, and overcome them not only as individuals, but also in community, I suppose, subconsciously.
2: Yes, I can. I just can't believe it's the end of the program <laughs> anyway.
1: Doesn't it go by quickly?
2: Uh, it does. It does. And thanks to you, that's why it does. Yes, uh, I think one thing that, you know, if, I, if, I, if you were to ask me, what you just have, what is the one thing that you know, I would like to say to people? The reason that we have kept ourselves recycling from endless life to endless life. And just like a car stuck in the sand or the mud, we're spinning our wheels, we're just regurgitating the same old, same old. The one reason is, number one, those very institutions that are supposed to be in charge of our eternal destiny, their stock in trade is guilt and fear. Fear of God fear of punishment after death for all eternity etc all of our actions every day are governed by right and wrong am i doing right am i doing wrong this is all keeping us more stuck and this is keeping us coming back to confront the same old
1: issues is this also compromised and added to today by the manipulation that we have in our lifestyles with the corporate mansion with the way that we're driven down the road of shopping in certain stores and having material possessions to keep up with the joneses yes. all these things in this chaotic issue that we have now
2: absolutely you're absolutely right i mean all of this stuff is designed to suppress that small tiny voice that's asking about the four great questions you know we've become preoccupied with, as you say, keeping up with the Joneses. I don't know if that's a phrase here in America or not. I'm still here to learn the language. But that's it. You know, all of the, all of modern society, it would be hard to find a society that's more off track spiritually. I say this with great respect because I don't want to offend people. But, you know, in terms of real spirituality, in terms of really coming into with the god who dwells within me the kingdom of heaven is within me as jesus said would be hard to find a society more uh, at odds with that track than western europe or north america today unfortunately and that's not out of bad intent i know that people are extremely sincere but we have got to realize that those issues that you talked about guilt and fear and suffering and apprehension which are the stocking trade of the religions. You know, fear God, fear your punishment, repent, you know, um, accept the sufferings of Jesus and feel guilty for what Jesus had to suffer for you. This is keeping us buried deeper and deeper. We need a whole Copernican revolution standing.
1: In closing, therefore, I'm very aware of my listeners possibly more than most. Uh, when I walk into the studio, my focus is on those that are in trouble, uh, in abusive relationships, uh, suicidal, whatever it is, Mihal. In closing, could you provide an assurance to people to how they need to re-look at their lives, need to re-look at the lives of those around them by focusing on themselves first in... Allaying these fears and attempting to not be suppressed by them?
2: Yes. You know, the first thing, and you and I both realize that people who have psyched out humanity and who have managed to figure out what people like to be told, those are the ones that have the mass audiences and the mass followings today and they're just leading them leading them down the garden path to nothing. If you, like I know you are doing, if you, on the other hand, are sincerely trying to help people who are in abusive relationships, who are in all of these difficult problems, if we can manage to say to someone, look, we are all mirrors to each other, and some of the baggage that I carry from my previous existence or existences Some of the issues that I haven't resolved are so deeply buried in me that I cannot see them in myself. The only way I can see them is mirrored in other people. Then you begin to have an entirely different perspective on those people whom you absolutely can't stand or who irritate you beyond all uh, expression. Maybe it's because the issue I'm looking at in them is actually so deeply buried in me that I can't see it except as reflected in the mirror to me. Now, here's the thing. Am I going to be man or woman enough to grasp the metal and say it's going to be over and done with? I'm going to resolve this. I see that I have created this. It's nobody's fault. It's not my husband and my wife. Maybe they're giving me the sublime gift of allowing me to see what is in me that's drawing all this stuff to me like a magnet that's what quantum physics tells us you know if you express something to the world you're magnetizing that kind of reality to you so for, so
1: forgiveness really here is it's, a key it, word
2: forgiveness is the key word if you understand it correctly in what jesus said because that was his key for mastery of the quantum field it's not a forgiveness, oh you you wretched creature, you know, I am much more superior morally to you. I am going to forgive you, you know, forgive and forget most of the people we f- we forgive and forget to, we don't want them to forget that we've forgiven and forgotten i am owed something by you, you wretched, inferior creature. I have forgiven you, you know that's not what we're talking about. it's understanding where all of this came from. It came from me in the quantum field. And if it's being pushed in my face now, if my nose is being rubbed in the dirt with my problems in my relationships or whatever, realize it's a great favor. In marriage relationships, you know, if my partner is rubbing my nose in it by what I see in them, if everything I he or she does, you know, is getting my goat, maybe it's time to look at myself, and then I can end it all, and it need never appear again on my agenda. That's what I would love for people to see. In other words, a way of freedom and enlightenment out of the garbage and the mud.
1: Dr. Mihal Ledworth, it has been a great pleasure uh, to share these two programs with you. Um, I've enjoyed this so much. I certainly hope that uh, we'll be able to share another program one of these days.
2: I certainly hope so, David. Thank you. And it's a rare thing to find uh, someone as perceptive and sincere as you and I I greatly appreciate the opportunity to talk to
1: you. Thank you, uh, likewise. And to our listeners, I do hope that you have enjoyed these two programs. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. I'm sure that Dr. Mihor Ledwith will be happy to respond to any feedback or comments that you may have on this. You can visit our blog. Uh, It is being well used, and um, I'm sure that uh, our guest today will be very happy to respond to anything you have. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening.